Good morning, church. Special welcome back to Monty. So grateful for him. I want you guys to know, he would never point this out, but he probably got back in his house, I, I suspect, around 3 a.m. yesterday, like Friday night, yesterday morning. And uh, he still came here to serve us and lead us in worship. Can we thank God for our student minister, but also our worship minister here, Monty? Please thank God with me for you. Appreciate you, man. I love you, dude. You lead us with your life, not just with a great program. So thank you for that. If you're just joining us today, just visiting with us, my name is Dean, and I am absolutely honored to serve this congregation as the lead minister here. And uh, we want you to know this is a great place to, to find a connection. I say this all the time. If you're looking for the perfect church, keep looking. You won't find it, but keep looking. Uh, this is a place we're broken and we own it. We're a mess and we own it, but it's okay to be broken because we are on a journey with a God who fixes and redeems all things. And so this is a place to come. Be who you are, but grow into the fullness of what God intends for you. So please come and, and not just, I hope, you know, in some consumer way, hey, we hope you're blessed. We, we want your gifts. We need your gifts for this place to be fully what the body of Christ is intended to be. So come, find your place and serve. And if you're just coming for the first time, we, we literally have a welcome center out there. Grab a cup of coffee, grab some water, and give us a chance to get to know you. Glad you're here. Um, what we started last week, we're kind of finishing, for the most part, finishing the summer with this little mini-series we call The Great Eight. Part, part of the reason for that is we live in this world that's just turbulent. You kind of feel it in the summer, right? It's supposed to slow down. It doesn't. It goes faster in so many ways. Life just is turbulent, and we're always looking for an expression of hope, an anchor of hope for us to hold on to. And throughout the last 2,000 years, one of the greatest places the people of God have found expressions and visions of God's hope is this one chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. And so we've been exploring that. We started it last week, kind of hearing God talk about the life God has for us is entirely a gift. You don't earn it. You don't achieve it. You don't work for it. You receive it. But the cool thing is, and we started this last week, we'll continue it this week, once we receive that free gift, then we now have the choice. We can actually choose to live into the fullness of the life God intends for us, or we can, man, you're heaven bound or whatever, but you can live in this thing they call the flesh, more on that again in a moment. We can live by our gut instinct, and we can escape, unfortunately, living the fullness and the richness of the life you long for and the life God created us for. And we don't want that. So we, we want to actually ask God, what is some practical ways that we make the choice? Last week, we talked about this mindset on the Spirit of God. What does that look like? Well, we're going to unpack it a little bit more, literally picking up where we left off last week. If you weren't here, don't worry. Each message is self-contained with its own wisdom, but I encourage you to go look at that. If you have your Bibles, your devices, we're in Romans chapter 8. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are in debt. But it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. 
Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I pray as the psalmist did so long ago, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to start in exactly the same way we started last week, but just slightly different angle on it. Again, what are, we, what are we doing in the beginning of Romans 8? We're asking this question, how do you live? I mean, how do you really live? And not just exist, not just past time, the image from last week. How do we live our lives as if we're that violinist on the street who's playing from the joy of the music inside of him, and that joy spills out to those around us? How do we live fully into our lives? Well, a different image, I want us to think about this way. You know this, but so many people have lived incredibly successful lives in the way the world defines it, only to get later at the, uh, in their lives or even at the end of their lives and look back and have these incredible regrets. Because for all that they succeeded in and all that they achieved, they didn't really live in the ways that matter most. And one of the things that we can do that give us some sense of wisdom is to ask those people who have lived life out and tried it different ways, who come back and say, this isn't life, but this is. Came across an article where they interviewed five or six different people, some of the world's most successful people, and asked them question not just of their success and their achievement, but of their regrets. What part of life did you not achieve? What did you miss out on? And all the ones that I looked at, the one that jumped off the page to me was Paul McCartney. Maybe you've heard of this guy before, one of the world's you know, most popular selling artists and musicians of our time, literally changed the face of music with the Beatles back in the day, still, I believe, performing in his solo acts. But one fan asked him some years ago, if you could turn back time and you could do something differently, what regret do you have now that you wish you could have done And in that moment of time, for all of his success and achievement, he talked about the part of life that did not flourish for him. And he said what so many people say later in life, I wished I had invested more time and heart into my family. And some of that were his own choices and his own failures, his failed marriages and other relationships like that. Some of it was circumstances that he could not have changed. He talked a lot about actually appreciating his relationship with his mother that he had only for a short time. His mother died when he was 14 years old. And he talked about, for years, struggling with the pain of that loss, and he said it really came to a head. Twelve years later, he's 26 years old, and he was wrestling with what happens sometimes when someone that you love dies and some years have passed. He said, I was really struggling because I could not remember her face. He said, yeah, I had pictures and all of that. I had the images, but I couldn't remember her face. And he was struggling, he was struggling. And he went to sleep one night. And I believe God gave him an image. Often God will will bring us comfort even in our sleep. And, And he got this image of his mother. He saw her in his dream. And he said, I particularly remember being impacted by her eyes. And I looked at her and she came and she spoke words to me. Gently. And reassuringly, he spoke these words, and any fan of music or historian of music might have heard them before. She said, let it be. 
Let it be. And as Paul McCartney tells that story, he lets us know it's possible to have every possible success and achievement in life and not truly live because we miss out on what matters most. You know, they've done scientific research on nurses in hospice care and others in other forms of palliative care. And they tell consistently throughout history what they will say is the same regrets they hear in people's final days, the same regrets. They worked too much. They worked too hard in things that didn't matter. They sold out for the wrong visions and the wrong dreams and the wrong sense of who they were. And one of the things I love about the great chapter 8 of the book of Romans is it gives us real hope and real purpose. It gives us a real sense of practical visions of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how that trains us to actually live in ways that we don't have to look back later and regret. We talked about it some last week, but let's lean into it this week. What are, what are some of these practical pictures of God's wisdom? What does it mean for him in Paul's language to live into the life of the Spirit? The first thing he gives us is really kind of an overall direction for things. Uh, picking up in verse 12, literally, he, he tells us something. He's using a really strange image, a really odd image, so, but he's giving us good news. But hear me, it's strange good news. Are you ready for it? Here's the good news of the gospel. You're in debt. <laughs> now, I know it sounds like really strange good news, but if we unpack this image, it can be really life-giving to us. You're in debt. Now, I say that, and some of you are like, no, I'm a good Dave Ramsey disciple. I've got no debt. You do if you're in Christ. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Most of you, statistically speaking, probably are part of the 340 million Americans who collectively share $16.9 trillion of debt. So most of us, I say the words, you're in debt, you're like, tell me something I don't know. <laughs> But that's not how Paul starts. He starts in ways that I would expect him to say. He says, you're in debt, but you're not in debt to the flesh. Now, a reminder of something we said last week, but if you weren't here, I'm going to say it again. And even if you were, every time I come across this language, flesh versus spirit, if you're like me, I am tempted to think flesh means physical and body and material world is bad and spiritual is this mystical, like ethereal stuff. No, that's Plato, not Jesus. Okay. Life in the spirit happens in the same place life in the flesh does, in the body. You can't do it without the body, right? We live out and practice our lives. That's why they're spiritual disciplines, spiritual disciplines you do in the body. We'll talk about that more in a moment. What is this idea of flesh? Think about them as two realms, domains, kingdoms of existence. What is the flesh? Flesh is life lived under the old regime of a fallen and rebellious world. Flesh is living by your gut instinct. Not the sanctified imagination, those Holy Spirit urges that we have in Christ, but by your gut instinct. This is what feels right, seems right to me. This is what I know makes me feel who I, like this is who I am. That's the gut fallen rebellious world. Paul says you don't owe a debt to that. You're free from that debt. In other words, Paul says, listen, if you invest in that, he's playing off this imagery, more on this in a moment, we talked about last week. He's playing off the imagery of the Old Testament. We lived under a tyrant's regime. Old Testament, Pharaoh kept you as slaves. In the New Testament, sin. This, this force of kicking God off the throne and saying, I'm going to run my own life. That's the realm of the flesh that we can live in even as Christians. Paul says, listen, that doesn't pay off. 
That is a debt you can never pay. Some have gotten really, really over their head in debt. You understand what I mean? Paul says sin is like that. You can never pay that creditor off. He's playing off the language of the Old Testament wisdom. The borrower is a slave to their owner. You can't get out of that. Paul says, but you're not in debt to the flesh. I love the way the message puts it. Here's the translation of verse 12 and 13 in the message. Don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent? Great translation of the flesh. This old do-it-yourself life. We don't owe that anything. What does he say? There's nothing in it for us. Nothing at all. The best thing to do is give it a decent barrel and get on with your new life. God's spirit beckons. God is begging us to trust. Investing and paying into the flesh and your gut and what you think and feel outside of the spirit of God is right. will never pay. It may move you for a moment, but it leaves you empty and bankrupt and enslaved in the end. Now listen, that's what I expect Paul to say here. I expect him to say, brothers and sisters, you have no debt. You are not debtors. You're not debtors to the flesh. He does say that. I expect him to put a period there. We have no debt. That's why it becomes really strange. He says, brothers and sisters, we are in debt. (laughs) What? Good news. He said, praise God, we're in debt. What are you talking about? We're not in debt to the flesh. We're in debt to the Spirit of God. What does he mean by that? We're in debt to the life in the Spirit. What does he mean by that? Again, if we're not careful, we can think that means i got to go try really hard and be really good so that God loves me. Maybe we got that grace means I don't have to earn God's favor, but maybe have to earn staying in it. No, that's not what he's saying. What is he saying? Elsewhere, he makes it very clear what he's subtly referring to here. And I've got a friend of mine who used to talk about this all the time, but I never heard anybody preach on it. And I love that Paul unpacks this. That's why I slowed down. I was going to do a larger chunk of this passage, but no, I want to lean into this. Romans chapter 13, verse 8, expands on this. Take in this imagery a little bit. He says, let no debt remain outstanding. So it is good wisdom for all of us who struggle with that. No guilt trip here. But the principle is the borrower was slave to the owner. So can we get rid of the $16.9 trillion of debt? We would be more full and alive. He says, let no debt remain outstanding. You would think he stops there again, debt free, right? No, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Because love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, I know this sounds sappy unless we understand the love he's talking about is the Trinitarian love that has existed for all of eternity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does that look like? Self-giving love. And it's this beautiful thing where the Father gives to the Son and the Son receives and gives to the Spirit and the Spirit receives and gives to the Son. It is self-giving receiving. It is selfless and yet full at the same time. Now, if we get that, he said, here's what I'm encouraging you to do. Recognize you're in debt, but you're not in debt to pay God back for anything. You are already free, and you're full with God. So now, consider it paying it old line, but so important. Paying it what? Not back, but forward. I've received fullness, so what am I going to do? I'm going to share that fullness and that life with someone else. And we get to join in on this self-giving love that God has been doing for all of history. What about that for a vision of our lives? 
You're in debt, but you're not in this oppressive debt where i got to pay something back. Listen, you don't have to earn God's favor. You don't have to earn God's care. You don't have to earn your purpose or identity. You already have it. Now you are free to give. Isn't that powerful? In other words, again, it sounds sappy, but think about this in the Trinitarian way. The only debt you now have in your life is the debt of love. That's what you get to give. That's what you get to make payments on. But not because you have to earn anything, because you already have it. And as you give, you're continually being filled by the one who fills all things, Paul said. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I remember getting a sense of this early on. We had just moved uh, to Charlottesville, Virginia. I was going to go to law school. We were, we were just married. I mentioned this before. Don't ever try this. First year of marriage, first year of law school. Melanie was looking for her first year of teaching job. <laughs> Don't try all of those at once. It was horrible. But we moved to a new town on a whim. We had our honeymoon. We came back. We thought, you know what? We're going to go ahead and move there early and get settled uh, at the beginning of the summer before the school year starts. She didn't have a job yet. I had no idea what we were doing. And, and listen, we had no money. Do you hear me? Nothing. We moved up there. We were living in the basement, thank God for the church, of people we didn't know yet, became good friends, but they let us use their basement. We just showed up. We literally had $50 to our name. I remember this being the grace of God because when we showed up, we got back from our honeymoon. There was an envelope that said, sorry, we sent this late, and it was a gift for our wedding. It was $50. That's all we had. <laughs> so we packed up what we had, moved. We were moved in this basement, and my car broke down. <laughs> Now listen, I didn't have the money to get it towed to a mechanic, much less get it fixed. And I met the man that became one of my first father, father figures in life. His name is Gaines, like stock gains and losses. He was a mechanic. He was the Rex Warden of that church. <laughs> father and son mechanic shop, he, he took care of people's stuff. And I'd never met him before, but I remember standing in his driveway, leading into his shop, and I said... Um, you know, I, I got this car. We, we, we don't know what to do. We don't know how we're going to pay you. He said, I've got it. He got it towed there. He took care of all of it, paid for all of it, did all of that. And when I told him, you know, can't pay you now, but what do I owe you? He said, listen, can we do this? He said, long before there was like a movie that came out later on, he said, he said here's what I'd like you to do. I'm going to give this to you. But, you know, there's going to come an opportunity for you. When somebody in your life needs something, you have the resources to take care of it, and you just take care of that. We'll consider that my payment. And I remember there was a day, Melly and I got to do that. Somebody had a need, and I said, and they said, hey, we can't pay you, or we don't want to pay you. I said, hold on, listen, can I tell you what I'm doing here? My friend Gaines did this when we had nothing. And, and how different, he gave me this vision, how different would the world be if this was our vision for life? Somebody blessed me, so I got something here, and I can play. How different would the world be if that's the way we ran our lives? Paul says, you are in debt, but not to the flesh, not to this oppressive thing. You don't have to earn anything from God. You get filled by God, and now you are free to pay it forward into the Spirit's life. Isn't that a great vision for life? That's how you live. Then Paul goes on to say, listen, you can't really have life unless you deal with the obstacles of life, the things that drag us down. We've talked about this thing, sin and failure and all that. Well, what we do, here's an idea. Paul says, rethink your plan of attack. If you're like me, I grew up struggling with this idea of sin and things that I was supposed to do. The, we said last week the do-do passage in Romans 7. I do do what I don't want to do and don't do what I do want to do. Right? We struggle with that. You, you don't even have to be a Christian to know that. As we said last week, C.S. Lewis said, every human being has some standard 
inside of them and every human being knows they don't live up to it. We all struggle with this. Now, let me tell you, I grew up thinking, here's the way to beat sin and struggles in my life, sin and failure in my life. What do you do? You fight against it. You try really hard not to do it. In fact, there's an old clip. If you don't know who this guy Newhart is, go look at this clip on YouTube that it's Newhart. Stop it. <laughs> he is a psychologist. And somebody comes in, I can't stop doing this. I can't, I can't. And he said, just stop it. Just stop it. <laughs> and, and you watch the clip and it's hilarious and it's funny. But I'm just telling you, growing up in church, it wasn't anybody's fault, but this is the way I heard it. There's these sins, these struggles, lust and greed and power and selfishness and all that. Just stop it. How does that work for you? Here's a great insight I learned. Again, go read deeply Romans chapter 7 and what he talks about here in Romans chapter 8. And what you'll find is that Paul says, wrong plan of attack. In fact, one of the most powerful things I learned a long time ago, and it'll sound really strange, especially for a preacher to say, but listen to me. The worst way to fight sin is head on. The worst way to fight sin and failure and something you want to stop doing is White knuckle, willpower, say, I'm going to stop it. Let me tell you, this sounds really strange. That will actually empower it. The more that you try to resist only by willpower not doing something you don't want to do, it will actually make the compulsion grow stronger. Go read Romans chapter 7. That sounds really weird. By the way, that doesn't say go do whatever you want, Romans chapter 6. No, we die to that. He gives three words. I'm going to give the principle and we'll unpack it with a, with a real practical thing. Three words that are life-changing if you get it. In verse 13, what does he say? By the Spirit put to death the misdeeds of the body. Please don't miss that. By the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body. New plan of attack. Don't fight directly against sin. You will lose. But what do you do? Instead of worrying so much about how not to do something, and there are boundaries and things that you can do, what you do is pursue what God is calling you to. Do you hear me? It is so different. Instead of fighting against something, I'm fighting to get somewhere. And here's the powerful thing. When I am pursuing the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the flesh dies. It's a natural thing. Paul said earlier, they are hostile to each other, spirit and the flesh. If you engage spirit life, it will put to death the misdeeds of the body. Yes, there are choices you make. But the first choice you make is to head towards God. Okay, weird scientific word. And again, I told Mark, he's literally one of the only people I would have to say, please do not get up at communion and talk about creation and God creating light and talk about the heliotropic effect. Because you could talk about this, yes? All right, fancy word alert, but hear this. Thing called the heliotropic effect. Did you know all living things are drawn toward helio what? The light. Put a plant in a room. Guess what it's going to do? What's it going to do, Mr. Scientist? It's going to turn to the light. All living things turn to the light. That sounds so simple, but listen to me. In religion... We've done the exact opposite. We've turned to the darkness and we've tried to fight the darkness. No! Paul said, by the Spirit, lean into the light of God and watch how that disarms the powers of darkness. You don't fight the darkness, you go to the light. By the way, they've now done scientific studies of this in leadership and organizations. 
I got a friend of mine. This is how fresh it is. Good friend of mine here in this town. Does not go to this church. He's about to quit his job. He's probably 60 years old. He's an incredible manager. And the guy that is his boss does not realize he's going to lose one of the best managers in the region. Why? Because he's telling his manager to beat up, not physically, sticks, not carrots, the people he's leading. Try to get them to perform by putting all of these like demerits and these things. And he said, no, the way to lead them is to call them up, give them incentives to life. I'm telling you, this is scientifically proven. Oh, okay, this sounds really ethereal. Parents, you will never enduringly change your kids by constantly telling them what not to do. Husbands and wives, you don't change your spouse, period. Can we just stop there? It's not your job. But if you want to influence your spouse, you do not do it by telling them the things they don't do. You call out, it's the old saying in in good education, catch them doing something right. It is scientifically proven. And Paul says, listen, this goes all the way back to Scripture. Lean into the Spirit of God. That's the principle. What's the practice of it? Here's a simple word for you. Habits, habits, habits. Stop fighting by willpower. Habits. Make habits in our lives. You're not earning anything. You're just putting habits of rhythms that's turning to the light. Why do we have these things called spiritual disciplines or practices? It's not to earn anything. It's not because God loves you more. It's because I have to discipline, by the way, my body to live into the spirit. Isn't that amazing? Paul says, stop fighting with the old plan of attack. You will lose. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, watch how you flourish in life. Now I want to turn a little bit to say, with this picture of what life looks like, I want to remind you what Paul's doing in this. We talked about this last time. This is a whole section where Paul's playing off of a metaphor and an image from the Old Testament of their exodus from slavery in Egypt. Chapter 5, Pharaoh was the tyrant they were uh, running away from or enslaved by in the Old Testament. The tyrant in Romans chapter 5 is sin. It will take your life out to say, I'm going to run my own life. You will, it will. Romans chapter 6 goes to the image of how they were saved. God saved them from the tyrant through the waters of the Red Sea. And in Romans chapter 6, he said, we are saved by grace, through faith, through the waters of this sacred moment called baptism. Romans chapter 7, what did they get on the other side of the water? God gave them the gift of instruction in this thing they call the law. Romans chapter 7 talks about our new relationship to the law. We're dead to the old law. We have the law of the spirit of life. And then now in Romans chapter 8, we've moved to this thing where it says, how are we led today? We're led, not, not like a pillar of cloud or fire. You are led by the presence of God in this person of God called the Holy Spirit. Now this rest part of the chapter, all of that's leading up to, they weren't just led and just for purposelessness, where were they led to? They were led to this place called the promised land. That's a picture of every place they're going. All of this is building up to this picture of what they're doing here in the second part of the book. So, two things I want you to see. What is the promised land? And he'll give a couple of different images. What does the promised land look like? The first thing I want to say is welcome to the escape room. (laughs) You done one of these before? Some of you are like, what is this place? They literally lock you in a room with a group of people that you hope are your friends because you'll get to know them well over the course of the next hour. You have one hour to get out of the room. Everything's locked with like 20,000 locks and all that kind of stuff. And there are clues all over the room and you have to discern the clues, figure them out before the time goes up. Sometimes you ask for hints. You usually get three hints or something to get out. 
By the way, I was reminded of this. My friend, good friend of mine last week, he and a group of gamers, they, they like do board games on Friday nights for fun. You got people in my life? You got a picture? All right, so they went and did an escape room. They got out with 22 minutes left, didn't use a single hint. <laughs> it's awesome. I want you to think about this. Paul says, in the life of the Spirit of God, welcome to the escape room, because in Jesus Christ, you get to escape one of the greatest struggles and pains of human existence. One of the greatest struggles and pains of human existence. What does it say in verse 15? The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. One of the greatest struggles in human existence is the struggle of fear. I've said it before, I will say it again. One of the great plagues of my life is worry, fear, and anxiety. I literally, after college, had a severe anxiety disorder I had to deal with, I had to struggle with. And I still, to this day, will have fear haunt me as an enemy. So I, I say this as something I want to grow into, not as somebody who's got it all down. Struggle with this. But Paul says, the spirit God's given you to lead you through all of this is leading you into a promised land out of the room of fear. You get out of that oppression and guilt and struggle and fear. I'm leading you into a place of peace and abundance and confidence and life. It's not a spirit of fear. I was thinking about this um, recently. I was studying another passage, different passage, different setting. But I was reminded of something. Have you ever thought about just considering kind of numerically the most common command in all of the Bible? Have you ever thought about this? Most common command in all of the Bible. You might hear that, and you might think, what's the most common command in all the Bible? The most common command is worship God, right? And you can quote the passages of Jesus and all that. Worship God. No, not most common. Pray to God. No, pray more. No. Serve other people selflessly who are in need. No, it's not that. Read your Bible more. No. All of those are good things. Number one command, how I've set it up, I suspect you know. What is the number one most frequent, not even close, by far most frequent command in Scripture? Does anybody know? Do not, please say it, do not Fear. Do not fear. Most common command. God's, and he's not beating us up. He's inviting us out of the escape room. By the way, anytime I talk about these kind of things, I always have to confess as a pathological anxiety person, I have to say, here's how I encounter these passages. I'll read it. And first of all, I'm already afraid. Then I read the Bible telling me not to be afraid. Then I get afraid about being afraid. Has anybody else struggled with that before? So listen, this isn't like, oh, command away the feeling. It's an invitation to grow into a state of mind where by the Spirit of God we can get out of that room of fear. Gives us one little piece of this, by the way. How do we grow into this? He reminds us of the incredible relationship he has brought us out of the tyrant slavery and into a powerfully personal relationship. He said, by the Spirit we say, Abba, Father. Maybe you've heard of this before, but the word, the word Abba is an incredibly personal word. By the way, this doesn't mean you have to call God Daddy. By the way, I can't quite do that. That's just me. If you do, please, great, keep doing it. I, it feels weird for me to call God Daddy. But there is a personal nature to that word. And I love the way one commentator put it when he said, this is the word that would be used from a child crying out to their father when in distress. So think about this. When there's a little child who knows they can't handle what's going on, they'll look up and they'll say, Abba, save me. 
And when I read that from an old dusty commentary, all of a sudden the words came to life to me. Do you remember in Mark 14 when Jesus is facing the most overwhelming day of his physical human life? In fact, his words, he said, I am overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And what did he say? Abba, Father, take this. God didn't take it off his shoulders, but God was so incredibly present. He sends an angel from heaven to give him strength, and God is with him every moment. He did not abandon him on the cross. He was with him every moment, and he raised him from the dead. That's the relationship we're called into because of Jesus Christ. You get out of the escape room. Even when you're overwhelmed by your own struggle and sin, all you have to do is say, Abba, Father, save me. By the way, it's not just about pain and distress. The invitation for this personal Abba relationship is about anticipation too. The message again nails this. Can I read this translation verse 15 and 16? Listen, he says, The resurrection life, the spirit life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's not that old dead thing. Listen to this line. This is great translation. It is adventurously expectant. Greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? Oh, I love that translation. What's next, Papa? See, it's not just about save me from the bad stuff. What if that were our disposition of life? Every day we wake up and say, all right, whatever mess we're in, whatever we've done, Abba, you can save me for that, but here... What's next? What's next? What do we get to? What do you want to do together in my life today? How powerful is that? I'm telling you, that's life. You'll never have to regret. Now let's finish with this, this last picture of the promised land. And we'll do a lot more of this next week, but it's in the text here. So let's at least introduce it. What does Paul say? What is this whole promised land about? It's about us getting to a place where we embrace the inheritance we have. Do you realize you have generational inheritance that you stepped into in Jesus Christ? A major thing Paul talks about all over the place is that before you were in Christ, you were slaves. That's this whole image. You were slaves under a tyrant. Not just the Old Testament Pharaoh. Whatever you think about, I'm living life my own way, you are choosing to be shackled and slaved. He said, you're not slaves though, you're children. That's the invitation, to become children, adopted children of the living God. By the way, technically, it doesn't say children here. It does in one part of the place, but for the most part, he'll say, you're not slaves, you're sons. Now, before I make the women in the room angry, the point is not about gender. It's not cutting people out. It was using a cultural image they would get. In their culture, and this was not appropriate, and I'm not arguing for this, but in their culture, the only person of the children who inherited uh, what the family had when parents died were the sons. I ain't right. I'm not arguing for that. I'm just saying, Paul is using that image to say, even the ladies, when you're in Christ, whoever you are, male, female, slave or free, you get adopted into sonship, meaning you inherit. You get a share in everything that is Jesus's. And I know that sounds so preachery, but can you just take that in for a moment? You're not just slaves. God doesn't just get you out of your sins so you don't go to hell. God brings you into a relationship where you are co-inheritors of everything Jesus has. And this is an important part of this. We'll talk more about next week. Everything Jesus cares about, you now share with. Isn't that beautiful? It's all there. 
By the way, in the Old Testament, if we keep playing off those images, in the Old Testament, the imagery was very specific. What was it they were promised? They were going to the promised what? Anybody know? Promised land. It was like a plot of land. By the way, they're still fighting over that land today. Now, a lot of times, Christians miss out on the physicality of it. And we think it's not about land anymore. It's about floating away to heaven. No, no, no. Not the gospel. In fact, Jesus doubles down on it. He said it's not about a strip of the land. He expanded the vision of the inheritance. Have you heard this before? Most famous sermon ever preached by Jesus, probably. He got up and did this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. And he starts off by talking about kingdom people who are blessed. And he gives a bunch of different descriptions of those people. And one of them was this. Blessed are the meek. Don't think Spineless, think incredibly powerful wisdom and control of that power. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit, does anybody know what it says? They will inherit the earth. Guess what your inheritance is? You don't stop fighting about a plot of land. It ain't about that. God has said that's an image for the whole thing. When you are in Christ, you get it all. The whole earth. Now, that sounds really wonderful. So we have power when we do whatever we want. No. We share in all that is Jesus's, and we share in caring for all that is Jesus's. It was the point from the beginning. Remember the image. God's filling you up. So what do you do? You keep filling up those are around you. Till when? The whole earth, have you heard this language before? It's full of his glory. That's why you're here. And that's what it means to be alive, is that I understand what I have, and I get to contribute it to the rest of the world. You inherit the earth. To bless it was always the point. Genesis chapter two, two, right? Genesis chapter one. Sorry, you don't get to chapter one, right? He created you, and he says, "Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. Join me in filling up the earth." Then he called a people in Israel, and he said, "You're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." He says to Abraham, "I'm going to bless you. Why? So that you might bless the whole earth." Do you realize that's what it means to be alive? You are free from everything that holds you back. You get filled up by God, and then you just fill it, and you fill it, and you fill it. That's your inheritance, and it's been coming down for generations. And God, as he is so kind, I told Melanie yesterday, this week, she wrote the ending of our message today. It's really personal to me. Because I saw an image of what this looks like in a picture of this, which we now don't have, but it's okay. <laughs> if it comes up, you'll see it. Imagine this beautiful crystal bowl. Melanie is still doing this. We flew up briefly to see my mother, took her down to the place where she and her two brothers are doing a very sacred act. A year and a half later, they're finally going through her mother's things. After she died a year and a half ago. You guys know, some of you, if you've lost loved ones, that's one of the last sacred acts that you do. And you honor the things that were there. You give some away. You get rid of some things. You honor them. And you can imagine all of that. It's a sacred moment between her and her two brothers. And guys, she found this bowl with a post-it note attached to it. And on the post-it note, it said, Martha Frances Maxwell, it was in 2007. She said, my mother gave me this bowl. And she said, when my mother, Gracie, was 16 years old, her mother gave her this bowl. And I asked Melanie, could you do the math? You know where she was born. Do you know when? Do you know when? Melanie's grandmother got that bowl from her mother 93 years ago. Bowls of 100 years old. Great grandmother gives it to grandmother. Grandmother gives it to mom. And Melanie saw the last words on it. I want this bowl to go to my daughter. 
Melanie K. Barham. She's holding in those beautiful hands that I love so much. Four generations of sacred gift. And listen to me. It's not about the bowl. It's about four generations of women who, whether they had a lot or a little, they spent their lives filling up that bowl, giving it to other people. And Paul says, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what it means to live. God says, I'm going to fill your bowl so much when you keep turning to the light and leaning to the I'm going to fill you so much, you can't contain it. Would you pass it on and pass it on and pass it on so that generations might know the love of God in a way that it might fill the earth. Hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father God, thank you for giving us something so much richer than the garbage that we see in front of us every single day. And we confess, the garbage is there. We swim in it, this whole world. Father, empower us to turn towards the light and the life of your spirit, the resurrected Jesus. Thank you for filling us again and again and again, individually and collectively here in such a way we want to be a people that is that generational gift to the world. We're sharing that love, we're sharing that light, we're sharing that life until you fill the earth with your glory. In the glorious resurrected name of Jesus we pray, amen.